this is the 13th episode of the Coffee and Pens podcast and the first one of this year. Today our guest is Steph Smith. Steph leads Trends, the Hustle's paid newsletter, and she runs communities around her books doing content right and doing time right. We'll talk about distribution, pricing, and why differentiation is so important. Steph Smith from Doing Content Right, thank you very much for joining me to talk about your book. But first of all, I'd love to ask, do you consider this a book? You know, it's funny because I feel like I probably called it a book. I've probably called it a course. Uh, I had no idea what it was going to be when I first created it. In fact, I think it originally was a long blog post that ended up being too long to be a blog post. So it ended up being a book. So I guess most people refer to it as a book, but I guess it also has several other elements like videos or a quiz and exercises so you could also call it a course but I think most people call it a book yeah the thing that I had in mind is it's like an evolving book because the content that you created is not finished right yeah I mean it's a topic that is evergreen in nature right people since the beginning of time have created content and will continue to do that and so yes I tried to make the book itself relatively evergreen, meaning someone who bought it in 2020 would get value, but also someone reading the same book in 2025 would. But because content does evolve, I have been adding new chapters or new elements to it. And also I find that's a good way to reward customers because they bought into something at one time, hopefully got value at that time, but then will be even happier if they get, you know, another chapter or another bonus or another something later on. Yeah, that's that's great part of the deal. I was in, in your podcast session just one or two weeks ago and I, I felt great that I could be part of that community after having bought something and then I can be back like, in a few months maybe and there'll be an update. Um, yeah, exactly. And who is it for exactly? So it's for anyone that wants to create content online. So content is obviously this like broad term, but to start, it was mostly people who wanted to write a blog or a newsletter, especially I feel like when I first published it in 2020, newsletters were all the rage at the time. But it's important to keep in mind that, as you mentioned, content is also podcasts. It's also YouTube channels. It's it's basically any way that we're communicating online with other people. It's people trying to grow their Twitter followings. And so it was interesting because when I created the book, I hadn't started a podcast of my own. And... I basically went back to the book after I'd launched a podcast and was like, does this apply to podcasts? Like, like, is this applicable past writing? And it was kind of pleasant to go back to my own work and be like, yeah, actually this does apply to podcasts. This does apply to YouTube channels. It obviously doesn't get into the nitty gritty of like how to record on YouTube and how to publish and um, how to game that algorithm. But basically to get back to your question, it is broadly anyone who's trying to create content online, but the people who probably can benefit from it the most are people looking to write content online. Yeah. And do you think the main focus is on newsletter writers or blog posts? So one of the main, I guess, ideas in the book is that a lot of people stray towards more, I'd say, easier channels to grow on. So things like Twitter or, you know, trending on Hacker News. But one of the best distribution channels that people are, I'd say, under leveraging, which is surprising because a lot of people are leveraging it, is SEO, right? Ranking on Google because it has that bedrock. So to your question, 
a lot of people who read the book start out with a newsletter and think that that is what they're focusing on. But I actually would push people and do push people in the book to focus more on blogging because ultimately as a newsletter writer, it's really hard to grow if the only way that you're actually like producing content is in that one-to-one relationship with your newsletter subscribers. And instead what they can do is just take parts of that content or augment that content with blog pieces that actually do have more of that shareability and discoverability on Google. Yeah. Would you recommend that to an author? So someone's just writing a normal book, would you recommend them to leverage SEO? It depends. So SEO is really, really important if you are looking to do this in the long term. And I think most people are. And if you're looking to, as I say in the book, like get off the hamster wheel, because if you're focusing on just ranking on uh, something like Hacker News or having your stuff shared on social, you're basically dependent on the work that you do today um, to bring you results instead of something more like a dividend, right? So I view SEO as a dividend. Now, if you're writing a book, you may not care as much about that long-term kind of like long tail. You may just be happy with like a big book launch that brings you some money. And then after that, it kind of dies down and maybe it doesn't die down because word of mouth kind of, kind of sustains it. But if you are interested in kind of launching something like a book and having that continue to be relevant and also driving almost like passive traffic to that book, then yes, I would say that that person, that author could benefit from learning more about SEO and implementing that so that again, they're getting off that hamster wheel. They write the book once, but then one to five years from then, people are still finding the book on their own through that traffic. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Um, another topic. So the pricing of your book is something I'd love to dedicate some time to because it's now $200, I think, was sold yes. for $100 for a while. How did you come up with this pricing? Yeah, so it has evolved over time as I've experimented over time, but actually it started at $10. So when I first decided to create whatever this was going to be, and I say that because, again, it wasn't originally going to be a book or I didn't know it would kind of evolve into that. I found this old blog post that was what I originally was looking to do. I launched my blog in some point in 2019. And then by mid 2019, I had gotten traction and I went and started to write this long blog post, but the outline itself was several thousand words. And so I kind of got overwhelmed and left it to the side and later on rediscovered it. And when I rediscovered it, I basically was debating, do I want to create this? Do I want to put the effort in? Does anyone even care about this if Mm -hmm. I create it? And so I tweeted about that and I said, Hey, everyone, like I have this long outline, this long blog post. If I create this, would people pay 10 bucks for it? And again, I don't even think I said this is going to be a book. I just said, if I create this, like, will someone pay? Sorry, sorry. Can I interrupt a second? How many followers did you have at the time? I think somewhere between six to 7,000 um, okay. in that range. Yeah. So, so some, yeah. So I did have a following, but I think a lot of people looking back now, because my following is much bigger, are like, oh, you, you were so successful because you had 50,000 followers. And it was like, no, that a lot of those followers actually came through the success of huh. the book. Um, and so, yes, I tweeted it and I got quite a few replies of people being like, yeah, I would totally buy it. Like take my credit card now. And even a few people who were like, I would actually pay more for this. You should charge more. And it was just those few people. I think it was was maybe three people who said something along those lines. And I just thought, huh, like 
should I charge more? And ultimately my issue was that I didn't know how to come to that answer as in like, if I'm going to charge more, what should it be? Should it be $15? Should it be $50? I'm seeing some people sell courses for hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. Like where should I price this? And I had no idea, especially because it was my first time charging for something Mm -hmm. and putting something out there that people would pay for. So basically what I ended up doing is I work in growth marketing. Like that's what I do for my full-time job. I said, why don't I just get some data on this, which basically meant it started at $10 and I think it was every either 30 or 50 sales. I can't remember now. It went up by $5. And that was an interesting way to get data, meaning that I I could see how quickly the sales were coming at each tier. So at $10, it like flew off the shelf, 15, 20, uh, all of those were really quick. It really started to slow down around 30. And so that's when I was like, huh, okay, so I'm going to leave it at 30. And that's what I did until launch. It was $30 until launch. And then even after launch, it was $30 for quite some time. And then I started playing around with pricing again, as I got more reviews, more social proof, more people talking about it. I thought, huh, maybe this is actually pretty good. Maybe I can charge even more for this. I think it went up to 50 at some point. And then as you said, it went up to 100 for quite some time. And it was there for probably around a year. And then recently, I decided to play around a little more. And I did this anti Black Friday sale, which basically meant I took the prices back down before Black Friday uh, and they inched back up towards Black Friday, to which I doubled the prices instead of most companies. They reduced yeah. the prices on Black Friday. I doubled them. Um, and so ultimately, I'm I'm just so happy with how this book is done that I can now be pretty, I don't know, experimental with the pricing. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't work out, that's fine. If it works out, it's fine. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the price evolution since launch. Yeah. Apart from this Black Friday or pre-Black Friday sale, did you ever drop the prices? Yeah, I mean, I'll do sales um, often enough, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, the prior Black Friday, I actually did drop prices as most companies do. And I'm, as I said, because it's really just me and I I don't have these like growth goals or like a, a dashboard that I'm tracking and I'm like, I need to hit this number. I am pretty experimental with it. So sometimes I just decide like, yeah, like let's just do a sale or let's just, you know, let's double prices or <laughs> let's okay. just play around with it, get some data. And it is interesting because even with the like doubling to $200, like there was a couple days post that big Black Friday um, lead up where for the first time I didn't make any sales for, I'd say around three days, which was the mm-hmm. first time ever, right? Prior to that, there was well. maybe like one or two days um, throughout the whole like one and a half year period where there wasn't any sales. And so I was like, oh man, did I make a big mistake? But since then it started to pick back up again. And so it's just kind of fun to like see what happens. And um, again, I know some people don't have that luxury to yeah. just kind of be like uh, messing around with their pricing, but I do think it's interesting. My takeaway um, after, especially the first kind of experiment where, where it went up by $5 was that people don't experiment enough with their pricing. And mm-hmm. in fact, me doing that, I didn't think it was like revolutionary and it wasn't. I'm sure many people have done that before. I had so many people reach out to me who were like, oh my gosh, can I copy this? Can can I do this with my product? And I was like, totally. <laughs> this yeah. isn't like patented, like go go for it. And I, I do think it has helped other creators as well make more money because there's that like, you know, there's, there's that like social cue or psychological cue of like, this is going to run out and um, I want to get in early. And so mm-hmm. it's it's fun to just play around with it. Yeah. Do you think that normal books are maybe underpriced? If it's a good book, definitely. I mean, the crazy part about books 
is, and this is actually something I talk about briefly in the book itself, is mm-hmm. this idea of perceived value and the way that we anchor to particular kind of categories of products. So for example, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even if it's the same content, people will scoff at paying $50 for a book, but they will pay $500 for the same course and not blink an eye. And it's the same phenomena as like the the way that most people, including myself, struggle to pay more than 99 cents for an app, even yeah. if that app saves us dozens of hours a year, right? And if you value your time, right, it's, it's worth like potentially thousands of dollars to you. And so the same thing is true, I find, for a book where okay, there are a bunch of books that maybe won't teach you anything or maybe aren't worth anything, but the ones that are should be actually worth, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of dollars to you, if you actually are learning something that changes your trajectory, or in the case of my book, you know, if you are actually saving many hours of going the wrong direction in creating content, that actually should be worth a lot more than, you know, the $10 that people are used to paying for books. But it is like a psychological thing where it's really hard to change people's minds because a lot of that is subconscious, right? If I were to sit down and have a conversation with someone and say, hey, you're planning to start a blog. Okay, do you know what you're doing? And they say, no. And I say, what if I could save you 100 hours on the way to you launching Mm -hmm. a successful blog? They'd be like, all right, yeah, like I'll pay, you know, $500 for that or or maybe thousands and and they'd be happy to do that. But if I were to say, all right, here's my book, they'd Mm -hmm. be like, oh, no, no, no. (laughs) I don't want to pay. I don't want to pay that much for for a book, right? So it is just like, subconscious thing that we are all programmed to do based on our anchoring towards certain categories of products yeah that's right i feel like i would not pay more for a course or i feel like an online course does not deserve more than 20 30 dollars unless it has video yeah but see that's so interesting right because i i also feel similarly where we're like when i look at courses online if it has video all of a sudden i'm like oh yes i would pay hundreds i actually recently even you know it was through our corporate learning budget but like spent thousands on one recently and i wouldn't have done that if it was a book right and so it is interesting because even though it's the same content i guess you could say that you actually make it easier for the the end user and therefore that's worth something you're reducing that friction but it is i find fascinating that people even if it's the exact same content willing to pay hundreds per course and no more than you know ten dollars if it's the book yeah yeah it's interesting right moving on to the next topic how do you get the idea for doing content right when i first started my blog itself the blog that i wrote that ended up being successful that inspired doing content right it was because i as simple as it sounds had a couple things that I just really wanted to say that I didn't see being said. For example, this was before the pandemic, but I was working remotely and I'd been doing that for years. And the topics or the way that remote work was being talked about, I just found really strange as in most of it was done by like corporate entities that were, I don't know, trying to drive some narrative. And my one of my very first blog articles was like, guide to remote work that's not trying to sell you anything and it was just really like here's actually what you need to know um and so my first couple articles or really my blog itself was driven by this idea that like there are just certain topics that i really have something to say about and the book itself was similar to that where i had seen so many other courses or books or people talking online about content in ways that i i typically say are you know at best they meant well but it 
wasn't correct. So it was per perhaps leading people in the wrong direction. Or at worst, it was like intentionally just like junk, right? Like they, they know they don't know what they're talking about, but they know that this will make them money. And so they're going to mm -hmm. create a book or a course or whatever. And so I noticed that for a while as I was doing this work professionally, right? Like my job for the last several years has been like leading publications teams, building trends, which is a paid subscription being mm -hmm. at the hustle, which is one of the biggest newsletters in the world and building up my own blog. So I had done the like gamut of, of things that you can do professionally. And so I felt like I knew what I was doing. And as I said, I, I noticed that many other people, I would say, again, are, we're kind of leading people astray. So I said, I think I can create something better. As simple as that sounds, it was like that same instinct when I started my blog of like, I have something to say. And I actually think I can differentiate from the other stuff that's out there by just being higher quality, more honest, more transparent. And so that's what it started as. And then again, when I created it, I had no idea it would be like a 70,000 word book, but that just happened as I started to create. I was like, wow, I actually have more to say than I thought. But that, mm -hmm. That's how the book was inspired. Yeah. How do you feel about that honesty and that transparency now, like two years, three years later? I feel the same way. I mean, all of my content revolves around that idea because I think I have the luxury of working full-time separately from that. So everything that I create and I've written about this topic as well is just for fun or because again, I, I have this like want or need to say something and, and almost like clarify mm -hmm. topics that I see a bunch of junk around. And so because I work full time and my financial stability is housed elsewhere, then I can be totally transparent, totally open and share my numbers or not hit my numbers or not even have numbers. Right. Mm -hmm. um, which I know not everyone has the luxury to do, but yes, I, I think that has been and will continue to be like a theme of most, if not all of my work. Um, because again, I have that financial stability elsewhere. Yeah, that's so interesting. Uh, how do you feel about it, like the general market? Because I've been online, like in this type of community on Twitter, where everyone shares and tries to sell a course for only a bit more than a year. And I've noticed the same, like maybe problem that many people try to sell you something. And even though they know it's not really correct, um, but they pretend it is. I'm like wondering if in the last two or three years, do you think this has increased? decreased still the same i mean it's always been around if you look back even like decades ago there's been people trying to sell stuff that mm -hmm. hasn't been high quality but i think it maybe there's been more of it in the sense that for the first time and it's a wonderful thing creators are able to kind of cut out the middlemen and yeah. market themselves right so in the past you had to get a book deal today you don't have to get a book deal to publish a book and for that reason, yes, I think that there are more people who are maybe creating things on their own. And again, that's a great thing because you're getting a lot more out there. But as you get a lot more out there, there is going to be more junk in the mix. Um, and I think one, I guess, aspect that I've noticed is that when I'm looking at a lot of creators online, um, I've seen a lot more today that are marketing themselves as experts at things they've never really done and so maybe that is a like proxy as people are determining what follow or what people to follow or what products to buy i mean as an example my book as i mentioned i've been working in that field professionally mm -hmm. being paid to do that for years um, a similar example is like ali abdal is someone who a lot of people look up for youtube he actually built 
his YouTube up to like, I think he's now at two and a half million subscribers. And so he has the right, he's earned the right to say, I know how to build a YouTube channel yeah. and I'm going to teach you to do that. And so I think that times to be wary are when someone is saying they're going to teach you something, but they haven't really done that themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and so like, I've seen a lot of creators not calling anyone in particular who will say like, I, I'm going to teach you how to become a successful creator online but it's almost like those like MLM schemes where it's like, I'm a successful creator because I'm teaching you to be a successful creator. Yeah. Who's then going to teach other people to be a successful creator. And so not trying to hate on anyone in particular, but I think that's a good way to just vet people is like, have you done the thing that you say that you're going to teach me to do? Um, and not to be so pessimistic because there's always going to be junk around, but just to maybe have like a keen eye for what you should be looking for. Yeah, this exact thing gives me a lot of doubt about this podcast in a way because I've now done a couple of almost 30 interviews and I've learned a lot about self-publishing and I'd love to publish something about self-publishing but I'm not self-publishing myself so I, I feel I don't have the authority to write this book well I guess I should say that you it's not that you can't create things if you haven't done them before but I would I would ask the question like if you want to write about self-publishing and you feel like you know something that others don't, why don't you self-publish first? Why don't you give that a shot and prove your, you know, your hypotheses? Yeah. And then from there, you'll feel even more confident about writing what you're planning to write about. Because that was really important for me where like, I think if I had written my book maybe two years before, I would have had a bunch of ideas about content and I would have probably been right about some of them, but I... I wouldn't have been right about a lot of them actually because I hadn't tested them, right? By the mm -hmm. time I wrote my book, I had, again, done all of these things professionally, tested a bunch of things, been wrong a bunch of times, gone down all of the rabbit holes that you know you would go down as you're trying to build content properties only to surface and be like, okay, now I know what's tried and true. Now I know what actually will work for other people um, versus if I, I had done it years before, as I said, I would have been right about far less things and mm. maybe people would have still bought it and maybe people would have still said this is wonderful but now when I when I have written my book I feel really confident about what I'm putting out there because I've tested it myself yeah one of the things I, I like in your book and in your blog posts is I think what you call idea arbitrage where you just get those different ideas from around the web can you tell us a little bit more about that yeah so tied to what I was just speaking about, we have these ideas in life and sometimes they're wonderful and sometimes they're not, but we often think they're wonderful when we first have them, right? We're like, oh my gosh, this is genius. No one's ever thought of this before. Let me put it out there. Even sometimes before we've experimented with it, validated it. Um, and this idea of idea arbitrage is that when you get these seeds, you can actually imagine them to be like plants. Instead of just like going and selling the seeds, which are not worth very much because they haven't really been tested, uh, go water them, go turn them into a plant. And the way that you do that is not by going and researching everything in a vacuum for three hours, but to let kind of the, the world validate it for you. And what I mean by that is as you're browsing Twitter or as you're reading other books or having conversations with your friends, that seed is in the back of your head. And if it is, and it's something that you're trying to validate, you will notice things you will see other tweets that relate to that you will read articles that relate to that and you will be able to over time like either add to it and mature that idea or sometimes you'll find that actually 
I've had this idea and now that I'm really thinking about it, now that I'm seeing like what, how other people are talking about it, this idea doesn't really have much weight. It doesn't really um, mm -hmm. hold itself, hold its own. And so that's what I encourage people to do. And, and the article that I think you're referring to is my one about writing. It's about my entire writing yeah. process and mm -hmm. it's called writing is thinking. If people Google that, they'll probably find it. But yes, it's this idea where I think some people, because of the way that we were taught in school, think that writing an article is about like sitting down and writing that article from top to bottom in one sitting or two sittings. And I basically never do that. And often it'll be like 30 sittings, <laughs> as crazy mm -hmm. as that sounds. And one sitting may be as simple as like dropping a tweet in there that relates to that article. But it's it's important for me to write, write down all these seeds. And I have hundreds of seeds now of things that I eventually want to write or talk about. And then adding things as as I go to the point where when I actually sit down and write that article, it's really easy because I have all of this information, but more important than the information, I've thought about it. I've like let it mature in my head to the point where when I'm sitting down, I'm very, very clear on what I'm actually trying to say. Yeah. So all these examples, all these like tweets and articles that you refer to and they, you include them in what you write. Yes. Um. Did is that still idea arbitrage, or, or is that just like the considering if it's something you should talk about? Well, I think it's all inclusive in the sense that I think this idea of like idea or information arbitrage is really sitting down and thinking through, um, or expanding your initial seed, right? So growing it, mm -hmm. and part of growing it is thinking about it more yourself. So crystallizing it, but it's also, yeah, bringing in these different concepts from elsewhere that either can make its way into your writing or what I do often include is the tweets itself, right? As like examples or um, pieces that can augment the article. Well, I try to, you know, reinvent what they said instead just insert what they said and obviously give them that credit because they encapsulated part of your point better than probably you could. Yeah. Do you think that including those examples, those tweets, is part of your exposure strategy? Uh, you know, maybe early on it was helpful because early on when I had no idea how to grow a blog, I do remember for a couple of my articles reaching out to a couple of people and saying, hey, you know, uh, X person, I ended up including your tweet in my article. You might enjoy it. But I have to say that I don't think that ever actually drove any, you know, volume or any traffic mm -hmm. because most of the people that I was citing are big names already and they have no reason to share my article. And so that was not something that I think I included in, in doing content, right? Because it didn't really work. So this is an example of something I talked about before where I, I went down the rabbit hole of things that you could do to grow content. And then I came back up and said, these things work and these things don't work. And that was an example of something that at least for me did not really move the needle. Yeah. So what did work to distribute this book? So the book itself is different than I'd say most content that I did before, but the book itself. So yes, I had a Twitter following to start with. Mm -hmm. um, the pricing strategy was helpful as well. That, as I mentioned, got a lot of different people sharing it. Even if they weren't buying the book, they were sharing pricing strategies or doing some of the work for me. Um, I also, there's like little things within the book that people wouldn't consider, but for example, having quotes within the book that are highlighted and um, similar to what Medium does, mm -hmm. um, 
they're, they're like differentiated from the rest of the text was very helpful because as people started to read it, they ended up sharing those exact quotes. I think I actually share that in the book itself or maybe something I did after the book where all of the quotes that people have mm-hmm. shared from the book are those quotes that were teased out. Um, I also did an affiliate program that was helpful. Um, I I think also having that pre-sale, which I did. So basically, instead of just starting to sell one day, the pre-sale basically ended up providing two to three launches. So mm-hmm. basically, the first launch was, hey, everyone, I'm creating this as a pre-sale. So that drove some interest. Then obviously, I went um, created the book. And then when it was ready to launch, that generated another launch to say, hey, this is ready. And a bunch of other people rallied around it because they were the pre-buyers and they were happy to support. But then the cool part about that was that there was now this big cohort of people who were all reading it at the same time. Mm-hmm. And you saw maybe around two weeks later, there was a second, it wasn't so much a launch, but because of all of the awareness or, or the people reading it and then sharing it and talking about it, there was almost like a third launch after that. And then there was probably, there were several other launches I launched on Product Hunt later. So there was many um, kind of iterative launches. And that was actually one of the concepts that I talk about in the book where, for example, ignore books for a second. A lot of people, when they're creating products, they think they have one opportunity to launch and they're mm-hmm. like, okay, I need to master this Product Hunt launch. And they're approaching it from the mentality that Product Hunt or a specific launch will make or break my product success. And it should really be the opposite. The product itself should be so good and you should kind of curate an audience around that first so that when you go launch on something like Product Hunt, you already have a kind of encapsulated audience that's happy to support you. And that's actually something that I did with doing content, right? Where I launched it around a year later, once I had over a thousand, if not, I think over 2000 people who had read it or at least bought it mm-hmm. and who liked it so that when I went to launch on that platform, it was really, really easy. And I didn't even really have to prompt people. People were like, oh, I love this. Like I'm going to support it versus in the past when I had done product hunt launches, it was the opposite where I was like, oh, I really hope this makes my product successful. Like Mm -hmm. no one's heard of it. I hope people like it now. And so that's another, I guess, a quick point, but those were some of the things that helped the book gain traction. And I have to say that it's again, these pointers are different for this book versus if you were just like launching a typical article, but mm-hmm. um, I did obviously benefit as well from the audience that I had, the Twitter audience. Yeah. Did you continue with the same strategies for doing time right, or are you trying something new? Yeah, a lot of the uh, same strategies. So it started as something that I was asked about a lot. A lot of people will come to me and they're, they'll say, I want to create a book or a course. What should it be on? And the easiest way to determine what people want from you is to think through what they ask you for, right? So Mm -hmm. similar to people asking about content in the past, a lot of people throughout the last couple of years have said, hey, Steph, you know, they're saying this about me. I'm not saying about myself. They're like, you're so prolific. How do I, you know, create as much as you do? And ultimately I decided, well, I'm just going to productize this instead of answering every single person specifically. So that was similar in terms of productizing something that a lot of people ask me for the pricing strategy was basically the same. It's different numbers, but tiered pricing that led up to a launch, a pre-sale. Um, doing time right was helpful because I had this large uh, group of buyers from doing content right. So thousands of people who liked the work and basically bought into to the next product without blinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I will say that again, because I 
have my financial stability elsewhere, I don't push these things in the same way as if I was doing this for a company. If I was doing this for a company, which is what I do, right? Mm-hmm. Outside of these products, I would be driving paid ads to them. I'd be optimizing the landing pages and A-B testing them. Yeah. I would develop a much, much more comprehensive affiliate program. I would do outbound affiliates. Um, I would probably create several um, almost like uh, SEO pieces that would drive traffic that then would direct to those pages. And I haven't done most of those things because I'm not trying to like juice <laughs> these yeah. these products. And I'm quite happy with just however they've done a little more naturally. But I wanted to say that because if people are listening, they're like, what? Like, that's all she's done for growth. Like, hmm. that's so basic, but it's intentional where, again, if this was for a company, as I do for my work, there are many other things that I think people could leverage that I didn't actually use for these two products. Yeah. Um, and also think that if you decided to go into paid ads and everything and really productize uh, your books, you would not be able to offer the same community experience that you, you do now. Yeah, I think that's that's probably true. I am figuring out right now how to adjust the community because it started again as something where I'm like, I have no idea where this mm-hmm. is going to go. And I expected maybe a couple hundred people to buy it, if that. And it's now been thousands of people. And so for example, the DCR community chat has like almost a thousand people in it now. And it started on Telegram for the reason that Telegram I think works for a certain size, but Mm -hmm. now it's too big. And so I'm debating where to move it. But yes, you're right that if I further juiced it with paid ads and started selling thousands more copies, then right now the infrastructure doesn't really work. Yeah. And in a way, I think it would lose part of its value. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Um, all right. Final section I'd love to talk about is writing itself. So um, the article that you've shared, of course, has a lot about your writing. But do you think there's like a superpower that you have as a writer that you've developed in the last couple of years? No, I I definitely don't think so. And that's I think uh, I think that's maybe a misconception that I also had before I started writing mm-hmm. where if you think back to English class, which I think a lot of people base their affinity for writing or their lack Mm -hmm. of affinity for writing on, basically English class teaches you how to write in a very specific way. But I think even more important than that, it forces you to write about topics that you don't care about. And so writing is this very arduous, unfun (laughs) process or not fun process where um, you basically learn to hate that craft or I did at least, I remember in my high school, English was the only class that we had to take all the way through. And it was the one class that I disliked the most. And so it's funny now, you know, five, 10 years later that I now write for a profession or I have written as a profession. It's kind of wild to think about that change. And it's because now I have the ability to write in the ways that I want, but also I think again, more importantly about the topics that I want to write about and it's coming from more of this place of like I really have something to say and when you really have something to say and you've thought about it for a long time I mean the red the article itself is called writing is thinking Mm -hmm. then writing is is sometimes difficult but sometimes it's really enjoyable and sometimes it really flows and again the article that I wrote on this topic talks through this idea where 
we're taught to write a certain way before where we sit down and you bang out an essay and it's done and it's really, <laughs> you know, not very enjoyable. Mm -hmm. But instead, if you approach it from, let me talk about things that I know a lot about and let me give it the time to ruminate in my head um, and to kind of cross-reference with all of these other points, then when you sit down to write about this thing that you already know a lot about and that you've already processed, then if writing is thinking, thinking is also writing in the sense mm -hmm. that when if you've pre-thought something, the writing comes very, very naturally. And then I would say like any skill, yes, I would, over time, I've gotten better at writing as I've done it more. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I think that's actually another important takeaway for people in that it's interesting that we tend to bucket certain skills as learnable and other skills as not learnable. But I think all skills are learnable. Mm -hmm. And maybe you're just, you know, you have a natural affinity to it when you start. Um, but math writing, coding, all of those things I think are extremely learnable, even though people tend to put them in buckets of like, I'm a good writer or I'm not, or I can code or I'm technical or I'm not. Um, and so that is something to keep in mind. And I think I'm actually a great case study on that in the sense that I truly not only hated writing, but I was not good at it. And so mm -hmm. if I have turned that around through the things that I've talked about, through talking about things that I care about and just doing more of it than other people can do the same thing. So I'm not some, some special case. Um, and I don't think really anyone else is in terms of actually like being born a natural writer or not being born a natural writer. Right. So over this last 40, 45 minutes, we've had a lot of tips about pricing, distributing. If you could give like a new writer, someone who's, who wants to write their first book, three tips about writing itself, what would they be? It's a good question. So you mean actually the craft of writing or about yeah, the creating craft of writing and the, the idea of just sitting down at your desk and putting the words on, on paper on your screen? So I guess I'll adjust that question in the sense that it, when it comes to actually putting words on your screen, if you're at that point, I don't have very many tips for you because at that point, hopefully you've done the preparation before to think about the topics, to become an expert in something, to really think about how you're going to be differentiated. And then the words on the screen or writing the words on the screen should actually come very, very easily. And, mm -hmm. you know, I could tell you like use some of the tools like Readwise or Draftback or whatever to like make that process easier. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I know tons of people who, you know, write articles in a text editor and other people who are using... 50 different tools to make their writing process better. So I don't actually care as much about that, but I guess to give some tips on the precursor to sitting down in that desk, one of them is what we've talked about before. Make sure that if you're going to write about something that you are an expert and you don't have to be like the Olympic athlete of that particular space, but you know something very, very well, you've thought about it mm -hmm. and you have uh, almost like an angle to talk about that particular topic in a way that other people ha haven't. So for example, it can be just as simple as you're just a lot funnier about that topic. You're a lot more deeply researched. You're um, contrarian in the way you talk about that topic. But in order to even get to those points of differentiation, you need to know that topic very well. So that's the first piece of, of feedback uh, or tip is that you really should know about a topic a lot. And that also feeds into this idea of like being passionate about it and wanting to write it and therefore the writing coming more easily. Um, the the second thing that I, I know this is simple, but I would tell people not to overthink 
this whole writing process. And again, if you know something very, very well, it shouldn't be this like big elaborate thing where you have to read 50 books in order to figure out how to write about this thing effectively. You should know what the gaps are. The same way that I talked about remote work before, I knew what the gaps were because I had been in that space and I'd been studying it and I'd been reading all of the other information out there. And I noticed something, there was like a seed where I was like, there's stuff missing. And so you should have that same instinct as you're writing. If you're writing just to write, so I guess this would be the second tip. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But I would caution people who kind of jump on the bandwagon where they say, oh, everyone has a newsletter. I'm going to create a newsletter. Mm-hmm. Or everyone has a podcast. I'm going to create a podcast. Because at the end of the day, all of these mediums, all of them are competitive. That does not mean that you can't succeed in them. But you you do have to differentiate in some way. And so I would say that if you're if you find yourself saying that as a person or a company, I see companies do this all the time where they're like, oh, well, it's, I guess it's time to have a blog. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. well, what do you have to say? Do you have something unique to say? So I guess that would be um, a second point. And then I'm trying to think through, I mean, I guess the third thing that I'll say is not specific to writing itself, but it relates to the long term viability of writing is that as unnatural it is as it is for many writers you have to focus on distribution and that distribution effort should be roughly equivalent to the time you spend writing. And, you know, you can mm-hmm. argue that it shouldn't be 50, 50, maybe it should be 70, 30 or whatever. But the point is what most people do when they create content is they spend 95, if not 99% of their effort creating that content. And then, you know, the equivalent or the the opposite of that in distributing their content and ultimately that's important to reverse or to balance out because if you're not putting your work out there no one's going to know about it and I can bet you anything that if even if you think you love writing if you do it for a year and no one's reading your work Mm -hmm. you're going to give up and it's going to be really demoralizing and I, I just I would just remind people if they you know disagree with me on this topic that the or your favorite artist your favorite creators are probably good at creating they may even be great at creating but i can guarantee that they're great at distributing that's how they reached you that's how you know about them and there's a ton of other creators who are probably more talented than them hiding in their basement spending all their time creating but no time distributing and you don't know who those people are and so i would just remind people i guess as the third tip even though it's not specific to writing if you do want to write or if you do want to create the balance to that creation is getting that work out there. So, you know, in the book, we talk about many ways to do that, but that is an important tactic or way to frame things that you have to invest in distributing, even if that doesn't feel natural to you. Yeah. So something like your three tips up, it it would be be an expert, differentiate and distribute. Yeah, I guess that's a a short way to put it. But yes, although those sound simple, those are things that I think a lot of people skip over. For example, there are tons of people, as I said, who are like, let me just start a blog and let me just start a blog about the thing that sounds popular right now that I don't know that much about. And let me just write 50 articles. And surely if I write these 50 articles, people are going to find them. And, you know, my work is going to speak for itself. And I would say that person is going to fail <laughs> if, if, if I'm describing that situation. So um, I would say, yes, the, a much better approach, even though it's very simple, is saying, hmm, what is everything that, or what are the things that I think about in the shower? Oh, I think about this thing, remote work, a lot. And actually, I think I'm maybe the 0.01% of people who know about this topic, who have done this for many years. Oh, actually, 
I read these articles and I think there's no one really talking about it in this way. Okay, I'm going to start there and I'm not going to overthink it and I'm not going to, you know, pick this topic that has the biggest TAM. I'm going to talk about something that I really know a lot about and I think I can differentiate with. And you know what? I'm going to create a blog because I think this is the best way to do it. Not because everyone is starting a newsletter today. I think this is the best way for me to articulate this information. And then once I've created these articles, well, they're just going to sit on this blog if I just write 50 of them. So how do I actually get them to people? And again, this is maybe elementary stuff, but it's stuff that I see people skip over all the time. And they go more to that first example that I described instead of just thinking through what do I know a shit ton about in mm -hmm. a way that I can differentiate with? And then how do I actually ensure that I'm baking in distribution into what I'm creating? And people make the same mistake with startups, right? They think if I build it, they'll come. And the reality is that they won't come if you don't actually invest in sharing it. Yeah. It's funny, actually, because I think I started this, this podcast, Get Away Around. It's more like, what do I want to learn a ton about instead of what do I know a ton about? So I, I wanted to learn a lot about writing a book and I started interviewing people about writing a book. And I think I've now come actually to a point where I know quite a lot about it. And maybe just what's, what's missing is the actual experience of doing it. Yeah, well, you'll you'll do it. And I, I should say that, and I've mentioned this in you know other interviews that I've done before, and it's important in that everything I've said is if you are optimizing for building something and growing it, right? And, and optimizing for that growth. As I mentioned with my own projects, sometimes I don't even follow my own advice because I, I don't care about optimizing for growth and I just want to have fun with this. Or if someone wants to start a podcast and they're not an expert in something and they just want to have fun with it, great. Um, but the advice that I'm giving is based on like, if you really want to optimize for growth and you want to optimize um, for that aspect as a creator, that's the advice. But People can obviously deviate from that and be just as happy or just as successful in their own way. But again, that's the advice if, if people are optimizing for that part of being a creator. Yeah. Speaking of optimizing for growth um, for your projects, you've, you've started a podcast as well. I think that's your most recent project. Yes. How do you tackle that in a, in a similar way or are you uh, trying to distribute that a little bit more? That's a great question. So yes, my podcast is called The Shit You Don't Learn in School. I co-host it with my partner, Calvin, and together we started it as more of a passion project. You know, like we have certain things to say, let's mm -hmm. say them. And since we started getting traction and since I, I see a path to this being actually quite big, I am actively trying to grow it. So unlike doing content right and doing time right, we are actively trying to grow the mm -hmm. podcast. And um, I have to say that of all the things that I've grown in the past, the podcast is the hardest because the data or the attribution with podcasts is terrible. And in addition to the attribution, the shareability, the discoverability, like a lot of the infrastructure that exists with written content just isn't there. And in addition to that, the way that people listen to podcasts is differently. The example that I gave on the session that you're on is that people tend to listen to on average six podcasts mm -hmm. and then read many more than that newsletters. Let's say maybe a dozen or two dozen newsletters throughout a year and then read hundreds, if not thousands of blogs throughout a year. Now they don't um, they're not monogamous with those blogs. They're not reading every article on that blog, but they may read one article with one person, another article with another person, discover another one with Hacker News. And the point is that podcasts are basically the equivalent of your best friend versus a 
blog article is basically like that person that you sometimes see at a conference, right? Mm -hmm. So you're spending way less time with that person. Um, and therefore you can interact with many more people at that level, but podcasts are extremely, uh, interesting in the way that you have that really deep relationship with your listeners in that they listen to you very often and for very long periods of time. I mean, you listen to people for like an hour, right? When, when you listen to a podcast. And so that's another added difficulty. It's mm -hmm. great once you get a podcast listener, but it's really hard to basically be the equivalent of someone's information best friend, right? Where they yeah. have six of them and you're basically asking to be one of those six mm -hmm. with your podcast. And so, yes, we're actively trying to grow it right now, but it has been way more difficult than growing, you know, newsletters or other platforms that I've done before. Yeah. One of the things I've, I've noticed that maybe it's because you started your podcast and I think you speak pretty fast. Is that because <laughs> you have your own podcast and you, you know that many podcasts are pretty slow and then it's sort of annoying to listen? That's funny because I had someone DM me the other day and he was like, hey, I like your podcast, but you speak way too fast. And I was like, thank you. Uh, but it's definitely not because I'm trying to speak too fast, as in I do think that some podcasts can be slow. But the nice thing about podcasts is you can adjust the speed, right? So yeah. I listen to most podcasts on 2x. So that yeah. probably plays more of a factor than me actually trying to speak quickly. Um, but I think that's something that I've been told even prior to, to launching a podcast is that I speak really quickly. So maybe that's something that I, I need to work on probably, but um, it's not because I'm intentionally trying to speak quickly. Yeah. It, it doesn't bother me. I just, it's something I noticed. Yeah. No, no, you're not the first one to notice. And it doesn't bother me to, to hear that feedback. Cause it's, it's something I've heard a lot of in the past or a decent amount of. And uh, yeah, I mean, everyone's got, I'd much rather be told you speak way too quickly on your podcast then your podcast you know isn't uninteresting or that you don't have any, anything interesting to say because this is much easier for me to fix then then if it's just hey your podcast is actually just really bland and i don't like the things you have to say yeah definitely do you have any secrets related to writing secrets uh i don't think so i mean I probably have some marketing secrets in the sense that the thing about marketing is that if you do find these like holes or hacks that truly other people haven't discovered, then sometimes, not always, it's a zero-sum game in the sense that if I let everyone know that I'm doing X, mm -hmm. then if everyone starts doing the same thing, then we end up with you know, an example is, is threading on Twitter, right? Like everyone's doing it today. I'm sure someone like two years ago was like, I found this really cool way to get engagement and now everyone's doing it. And so there are probably some things that I've done with marketing that are like, I am a little more secretive about, but I'd say mm -hmm. overall, I share almost everything that, that I learn because I've learned that in most cases, the world is a positive sum game. And um, that's why I have an open page where I share like exactly how much I'm making, how much I'm exercising, uh, what books I'm reading. And I think one of the pieces that like really influenced my thinking on this like zero sum versus positive sum thinking is um, Derek Sivers ideas versus execution framework. I'm sure many people are familiar with it. If they're not, you can Google it, but it's this idea that ideas are worth almost nothing. Execution is everything. And if you really believe that, if you really believe that, whether it's with writing, marketing, something completely different, then 
at the end of the day, if I share 100% of my ideas, which I think I actually come close to doing, mm -hmm. then I'm not really afraid of other people knowing about them. Because if there's anything that I truly want to do, I believe that over the years I've like honed in on my execution skills and therefore I can and should share all my ideas and not be afraid that someone's going to beat me or someone's going to steal something. And that's kind of the mentality that I've taken with, with my projects, which is why I'd say that, yeah, I don't actually know if I have any secrets. If anything, I poured all of my ideas about the subject into that book or into the articles I've written about it. Yeah. So maybe just this full transparency is the secret. Maybe. I mean, a lot of people talk about building in the open, but I do think that, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the things that especially early on when I didn't have an audience, because at one point I didn't, right? That's important to remember. Everyone who you know, whether it's Kanye West or the biggest TikTok star in the world, at one point had zero audience, zero people knowing about them. And I started from that same place. And building in the open was one of the ways that I was able to build something because that was new or that was different. A lot of people don't build in the open. And that is one way that you can very easily differentiate yourself from everything else out there. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Perfect. Is there anything else um, people should know um, about you, about your books? No, I mean, I think we shared a lot of it doing content, right? Wrote it 2020. It's done, I think, almost 4,000 copies now, which is super cool. And doing time, right, has done pretty well as well. I think we're nearing, I think we're around 800 buys, maybe more than that. I should check. Um, and then, yeah, the podcast, we just hit a new milestone of oh we're actually over 850 for doing time right um and then the podcast we just hit a milestone of 10,000 downloads a month which is exciting yeah that's that's pretty cool uh, where can yeah. i find out about all of these books and, and the podcast yeah so the place i'm most active is twitter my handle is stephsmith.io because my website is stephsmith.io where you can find all of these but you can also find the book at doingcontentright.com the course at doingtimerate.com and then the podcast. As I said, we are actively trying to grow. People can find it at listenandlearn.co or it's called the shit you don't learn in school if people search that. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Coffee and Pens podcast. Check out Steph's book for everything around distribution. Follow us, Coffee and Pens, on Twitter at Coffee Pens for regular updates and on Instagram at Coffee underscore Pens for visual breakdowns of the interviews. And remember, you can always check coffeeandpens.com for podcast summaries, show notes, and useful resources. Next up is Andrew Warner from Stop Asking Questions. Don't forget to subscribe and enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs>